day is taken from Mark chapter 15, verses 15 through 20. Where we read these words. And so Pilate, willing to content the people, released Barabbas unto them and delivered Jesus when he had scourged him to be crucified. And the soldiers led him away into the hall called Praetorium. And they called together the whole band. And they clothed him with purple and plaited a crown of thorns and put it about his head and began to salute him. Hail, King of the Jews. And they smote him on the head with a reed and did spit upon him and bowing their knees worshipped him. And when they had mocked him, they took off the purple from him and put his own clothes on him. And led him out to crucify him. None of us like to be blamed for something that we did not do. Perhaps you can remember how, perhaps as a child, You were disciplined for something you didn't do, but perhaps one of your brothers or your sisters did. And you received the blame for it, though. And perhaps the blame that you received hurt that much more simply because you knew you were innocent of any wrongdoing and that you had been treated unfairly. Dear ones, As Christians, we are told in God's word that we will suffer at times for things that we have not done. We will be maligned not for a lie, but for telling the truth. We will be hated not because we are personally hated so much as because Christ and his truth is hated so much. Our jobs will be threatened or taken away because we will not desecrate the Lord's Day, by unnecessary work. We may even suffer certain physical afflictions from Satan, as did Job. Not because we have ceased from following Christ and his truth, but because we will not refuse to follow Christ and his truth. Let us remember that before we wear a crown of glory, we must first wear a crown of thorns, as did our Savior. There is humiliation before exaltation. The Lord's example to us all reminds us of the cost involved in being a disciple of the Lord Jesus Christ. You see, there was the world breaks all of the rules that they can in order to get ahead. And they get there much quicker than we possibly can, and many times that happens. While the Christian keeps the rules, and he may never reach the same goals as do those in the world. For he has embraced, by faith alone, a glorious Savior, 
whose kingdom grows and whose power is demonstrated even through the means of suffering through which we go in one form or another. Dear Christian, I ask you today, has some form of suffering wearied you to such an extent that you have forgotten him who suffered not for himself, but who suffered for Barabbas like you and me? There may not be a better remedy, dear ones, to the pain or exhaustion of suffering than to look in faith and in love to our suffering Savior who endured the injustice, who endured the stripes and the mockery and the cross for the joy that awaited him in purchasing everlasting salvation for ungodly enemies like you and me. Christ overcame, and so shall we, who belong to him. For dear child of God, by his stripes you are healed. By his stripes you are healed. Let us consider this Lord's Day the following main points from our text in regard to the suffering of Christ. First, the scourging of Christ in Mark 15, 15. And then second, the mockery of Christ in Mark 15, verses 16 through 20. The first main point then, the scourging of Christ. Look with me again at Mark 15, 15. And so Pilate, willing to content the people, released Barabbas unto them and delivered Jesus when he had scourged him to be crucified. Last Lord's Day, dear ones, we saw how it was the envy and the evil desires of the chief priests of Pilate and of the multitudes that moved them to condemn and to crucify the sinless Son of God. In each case, they desired something that they did not have, something that they wanted more than the, than the desire to obey and to follow Christ. Before being led away to be crucified, Christ endured one of the most dreaded means of torture known in the ancient world, scourging, a Roman scourging. Let me describe for you what our Savior suffered in being scourged, that we might, in a new and fresh way, appreciate what Christ suffered for us who deserved to be there and to take that scourging due to our own guilt, due to the condemnation which we deserved. The Roman scourge or whip consisted of a a wooden handle, first of all, to which there were several leather thongs or cords that were attached to it. Now that would have been, I suppose, agony enough to be whipped numerous times with just a leather tongs or thongs at the end of a a handle. But this was far from what occurred in a Roman scourging. For there was far more to the Roman scourge than the mere leather thongs and cords. 
Tied to the end of each of those leather cords was some sharp and jagged object, such as a piece of bone or a piece of metal. As that was applied to the body of the victim, it became not merely a tool of punishment, but often even a tool of death. For once the victim was tied securely to a pillar or post and his body laid bare, the scourging began. With each stroke of that object of agony, flesh was ripped, literally ripped from the body with the most intense pain. Nor were the strokes of the Roman scourge limited to the back only, for as the whip was applied, it also wrapped itself around at times to the front side of the body, to the face. There are various accounts in history where the Roman scourge literally laid bare the bones and the inner organs of a person. This is the severity of the Roman scourge. The cries of anguish rang out from the victims of those who endured this method of torture. And there were no specific number of strokes that were required by Roman law. Thus, men literally bled to death at times and were often rendered unconscious. There are reports by various witnesses of such atrocities with regard to the use of the scourge. Now, it's interesting to compare the Roman scourge just described to the flogging that was required in certain circumstances under God's law. In Deuteronomy chapter 25, verses 1 through 3, we find what God required of those who received a flogging. There we read, If there be a controversy between men, and they come unto judgment, that the judges may judge them, then they shall justify the righteous and condemn the wicked. And it shall be, if the wicked man be worthy to be beaten, that the judge shall cause him to lie down and to be beaten before his face according to his fault, by a certain number, forty stripes he may give him and not exceed, lest if he should exceed and beat him above these with many stripes, then thy brother should seem vile unto thee. Now most scholars believe the instrument that was used here was not a whip when they were beaten, but rather a switch or a cane a narrow, flexible type of a cane that was used, which is, as I understand, still used in a country like uh, Singapore. Uh, in Exodus 21.20, there it speaks of, of a master who, who abuses 
his authority and uses a rod or a cane and actually inflicts death upon his servant and the consequences of that. So it would appear that this was a common tool used for beating, for whipping. But note carefully three things about what God says with regard to a flogging here. First of all, the judge must personally witness the whipping so that no abuse occur. In other words, that when a judge says that a particular crime has been committed and that he should be beaten with so many strokes, with a cane, that it not exceed that nor be less than that. That it be the full extent of the, the judgment which the judge did render. So he was to be present at this so that there was no abuse. In Christ's case, where's Pilate? He's nowhere to be found. The soldiers, it appears, have taken over in this particular case. Secondly, the one to be whipped was placed face down upon the ground, which I think has two things in view. First of all, it prevented the front part of the body being attacked. His face, his uh, uh, organs in, in the front here. The other thing that I think perhaps was in view in lying a person face down was that you don't have the same type of momentum as somebody standing up into a post and whipping them as opposed to if they're lying down. There is there's something different about just the leverage and that type of thing that, that one has. And so that there is, I would suggest, a curtailing, even at that point, of the severity of what a beating might incur. And thirdly, the number of strokes was limited to 40 at the very most. No beating or whipping could exceed that amount. <clears throat> In the New Testament, it became very popular. Uh, Paul says that he was beaten five times you know, uh, by the Jews, 39 strokes, because they said, We're, we won't even get two the Jews had formulated a law, we won't even get to the 40, so it's 40 save 1, or 39 strokes. <clears throat> Our Savior, dear ones, however, suffered to the full extent under the Roman scourge rather than under the Hebrew switch or cane. And he bore this punishment without a word of complaint as to the injustice or as to the severity of that which he received, according to Isaiah chapter 53, verse 7, where we read the prophet Isaiah says this concerning our Savior. He was oppressed and he was afflicted, yet he opened not his mouth. He is brought as a lamb to the slaughter, and as a sheep before her shears is dumb, so he openeth not his mouth. 
No doubt the Lord Jesus did express, as any man would, the intensity of pain and agony that pierced through his body. He was a man. He suffered in all respects as you and I suffer. His being God did not minimize the physical pain that he experienced. However, he did not cry out that they were scourging an innocent man. He did not change his mind about enduring such suffering and rather called for Barabbas to be brought to the whipping post in his place. He did not supernaturally break those cords that bound him, those chains that shackled him, as Samson did, and turned the scourge upon those who mercilessly beat him. Why? Let me suggest to you two reasons why. First of all, because he was not suffering for his own sin or guilt, but for the sin and guilt of an undeserving and an unlovely bride which he had chosen from all eternity to save. He was bearing the punishment, dear ones, which his elect deserved. Christ did not come to save the innocent. He did not come to justify the righteous. No, he came to seek and to save sinners and to justify the ungodly, the Bible tells us. Listen to the words again of the prophet Isaiah uttered some 600 years before Christ suffered the agonizing stripes of the Roman scourge from Isaiah chapter 53 again, verses 4 and 5. Surely he hath borne our griefs and carried our sorrows. Yet we did esteem him stricken, smitten of God, and afflicted. But he was wounded for our transgressions. He was bruised for our iniquities. The chastisement of our peace was upon him, and with his stripes we are healed. By his stripes, dear ones, you are healed of all your guilt before a holy God so that you can know the forgiveness of all your sin. By his stripes you are healed of the just condemnation which you deserved. By his stripes there is purchase for you Sonship, the sonship of God, so that you are given the right of adoption and everlasting life forevermore. And I would suggest to you, again, that even the redemption of this frail body, even the physical healing which God grants to us, is purchased for us by his stripes. There certainly can be an abuse of that doctrine where we claim 
that we are healed of all of our physical afflictions and we go forth and do not use the means that God uses. God uses other means to heal us. Not simply medical or not simply supernaturally, but he uses medicine and doctors. But even if those do not avail our healing, our consummate and final physical healing is assured and certain in the resurrection of our bodies. And that is in the atonement of the Lord Jesus Christ. It is by His stripes that we are healed completely and totally through His stripes which He received in being scourged and upon the cross and being crucified, suffering in our place and bearing the infinite wrath of a holy God. But let us consider, secondly, that Christ did not complain about his unjust scourging, nor break the cords by which he was bound in order to set before us an example in which to follow. He didn't complain. He didn't stop this scourging. First of all, because he wasn't suffering for himself. He was suffering for sinners like you and me. And he suffered, endured all of it because of the joy that was set before him in seeing his people rescued and saved. But secondly, he suffered the scourging and did not seek to stop it because he would set before us an example that we might walk in his steps when we endure suffering for the cause of the Lord Jesus Christ. Now, that doesn't mean when we are talking about enduring suffering for Christ's sake. In our case, since our suffering is not meritorious as was Christ's, we can't avail ourselves of legal means if we are wronged. That's certainly something that we can do in order to to avoid various consequences that come to us. If we're about to lose our job because we... We'll keep the Sabbath. We can take whatever steps to, to appeal in order to, to retain our jobs. That's certainly legitimate. But dear ones, by the same token, there are, there are times in which we will not, and we must recognize that in this world, we will not get justice in this world or in this life from civil magistrates, from employers, from ministers, from fellow friends and family members. There are times in which we will not be judged righteously. And when we have done what we know to do, what does God call us to do? He calls us to suffer like our Savior. He calls us to not mumble and complain and to grumble about the suffering that we are enduring enduring for his cause. Now, if we are suffering for sins that we have committed, that is something different. We may be undergoing the discipline of the Lord at that point. But when we are suffering because we have stood for the truth, because we are seeking to be faithful to the Lord Jesus Christ 
and to his commandments. Then if justice in this life cannot be obtained, the Lord calls us to suffer as Jesus did. I'd have you consider four benefits. Four benefits of suffering for the cause, for the sake of the Lord Jesus Christ. First of all, although Christ's stripes are indeed meritorious in securing our salvation, in our stripes, our suffering is never meritorious. Let us never forget that God nevertheless uses our suffering to draw his elect unto himself. Consider what the Apostle Paul said in 2 Timothy chapter 2, verses 9 and 10. He said, Wherein I suffer trouble as an evildoer even unto bonds, that is, even unto imprisonment and even unto chains. But the word of God is not bound. You can't tie up and bind God's word, even if you can tie up and bind Christians. Even if you can throw Christians into a prison cell, you can temporarily shut them up in one sense, but you cannot shut up the word of God. Because the word of God knows no, no boundaries. It can't be confined to the walls of a jail cell. It can't even be confined to a person's life. God's word will prevail. And Paul is indicating that such is the case. Verse 10, he says, Therefore I endure all things for the elect's sake, that they may also obtain the salvation which is in Christ Jesus with eternal glory. To catch the drift of what the apostle has said, he endures whatever comes his way by way of persecution and suffering because it will bear testimony to others of the work of God's grace in his life and draw them by the Spirit. The Spirit will use that to draw people to Jesus Christ as they behold our testimony, as they behold our faith and our confidence as we suffer for the cause of Christ. Rather than saying, I'm going to get even with you, Rather than saying, I hate and despise you. We seek justice, but after that, whatever justice we do not receive, we continue to entrust our souls and our bodies and all that we are to the Lord Jesus Christ and pray that the Lord would use our suffering to bring others to a saving knowledge of Christ. A second benefit of suffering. Before I go on to that, let me just give you one illustration that that I recently, and perhaps you have heard, a young girl in Hawaii who was surfing had her left arm at the shoulder removed by a shark. All in one swipe. Her entire arm just removed. A seeming tragedy. She was working her way up in, in various competition to be one of the premier surfers in the world. 
But in watching an interview with this young girl, I think, I think she was 13 or 14 years old, I was just in almost in tears at the confidence this young girl had in the Lord and the testimony she gave to Christ, that God meant it for good. God was going to use this. And it was just uh, quite amazing. And I have read subsequently various articles that indicate that there are people who have actually come to Christ as a result of this girl's testimony. That she was suffering for the Lord Jesus Christ. God brought this into her life to bring others to Christ as well. Dear ones, has our suffering drawn people to Christ or has our suffering pushed people away from Christ because of our attitude, because of our disposition, because of what we say and the way we act when we're undergoing suffering? A second benefit, let us never forget that God uses our suffering for our own sanctification, not only to bring others to Christ, but for our own sanctification in 2 Corinthians chapter 12, verses 7 through 10, we read these words of the Apostle Paul. And lest I should be exalted above measure through the abundance of the revelations, there was given to me a thorn in the flesh. The messenger of Satan to buffet me, lest I should be exalted above measure. For this thing I besought the Lord thrice, that it might depart from me. And he said unto me, My grace is sufficient for thee, for my strength is made perfect in weakness. Most gladly, therefore, will I rather glory in my infirmities, that the power of Christ may rest upon me. Therefore, I take pleasure in infirmities, in reproaches, in necessities, in persecutions, in distresses, for Christ's sake. For when I am weak, then am I strong. An amazing testimony. And I don't suppose that Paul was perfect in his suffering. I'm sure that Paul struggled at times and fell into complaining at times like all of us do. But an amazing testimony, one for which we should strive by way of our own sanctification to see that our sufferings do humble us. Our sufferings do show to us that he is God and we are creatures. That he is from everlasting to everlasting, and we are finite human beings. That He is the Savior, and He, being all-wise, ordains all things to His own glory. I ask, dear ones, this day, has our suffering drawn us, ourselves, to Jesus Christ? Or has our suffering pushed us away from the Lord Jesus Christ. A third benefit. Let us never forget that God uses our suffering to joyfully prepare us for the glories of heaven. 
where all suffering will be forever removed. Again, the Apostle Paul says in 2 Corinthians chapter 4 this time, 2 Corinthians chapter 4, verses 17 and 18. For our light affliction, which is but for a moment, worketh for us a far more exceeding and eternal weight of glory, that is, in heaven. While we look not at the things which are seen, or even the things I could add here, the things which we feel in these bodies, but at the things which are not seen. For the things which are seen are temporal, but the things which are not seen are eternal. As our suffering, dear ones, caused us to look with greater anticipation to the wonders of heaven which have been prepared for us? Or has it rather taken our eyes off the glories of heaven, the end of all suffering, and caused us rather to find our pleasure in this life and in this world? Finally, consider this benefit of suffering. Let us never forget that our sufferings for Christ, whether in body or in soul, demonstrate to us that we are Christians. Dear ones, the Word of God in 1 Peter chapter 4, verses 12 and 13 tell us that our sufferings for Christ show and demonstrate to us and to the world that we belong to Him who suffered those stripes. We belong to Him who suffered that mockery. We belong to Him who suffered that crucifixion upon the cross. We are partakers of the sufferings of Christ. So our sufferings with Christ indicate our union and our communion with the Lord Jesus Christ. In 1 Peter chapter 4, verses 12 and 13, the Apostle Peter says, Beloved, think it not strange concerning the fiery trial which is to try you, as though some strange thing happened unto you, but rejoice inasmuch as ye are partakers of Christ's sufferings, that when his glory shall be revealed, ye may be glad also with exceeding joy. It may be very difficult, and I don't know that we're called to rejoice in the pain that we suffer for pain's sake, but we are to rejoice that our sufferings and the pain we experience show that we are partakers of Jesus Christ. We have union and communion with Him. We are Christians. Dear ones, are you willing to suffer with Christ? Are you willing to pick up your cross 
and follow him wherever he leads, whatever cost may be involved in standing for the truth, whether it's ridicule, isolation, whether it's physical imprisonment, pain, torture, or even death itself, are you willing to pick up your cross and follow Christ? That's the cost of being a Christian. The Lord calls for no less from any who trust Him alone for their eternal salvation. Many professing Christians, dear ones, today want to know Christ and His resurrection power, and that is good. We should want to know the resurrection power of Christ effectually working in our lives. But all too few Christians want to know Christ in the communion with Him in His sufferings. As Paul says he does in Philippians 3.10. I exhort you, dear ones, there are times of persecution that may not be in the too far distant future that await us in our stand for the cause of the Lord Jesus Christ. The direction in which we see our government heading is going to become more restrictive and more restrictive unless God sovereignly intervenes. Those who take a stand and are willing to count the cost in following Christ are going to be suffering more and more for the cause of Christ. Are you willing to pick up your cross and follow the Lord Jesus Christ? Dear ones, if we would be exalted with Christ on that final day, we must first suffer with Christ in this present day. Our second main point is the mockery of Christ. First, we noted the stripes of Christ, and now the mockery of Christ. Mark chapter 15, verses 16 through 20. And the soldiers led him away into the hall called Praetorium, And they called together the whole band, and they clothed him with purple, and plaited a crown of thorns, and put it about his head, and began to salute him, Hail, King of the Jews! And they smote him on the head with a reed, and did spit upon him, and bowing their knees, worshipped him. And when they had mocked him, they took off the purple from him, and put his own clothes on him, and led him out to crucify him. The suffering of Christ, dear ones, was not finished with the Roman scourge, but continued from that point to, the, to that point of, of Roman mockery. Here we see that once Christ was scourged to a bloody pulp, he was led away by the, uh, the whole band, according to Mark 15:16. The whole band. That's the word that we had noted in a previous sermon: is a Roman cohort a group of Roman soldiers. And at the the time that we noted this, back in John chapter 18, we noted that uh, a Roman cohort was 600 soldiers. That's how many soldiers came to arrest Christ there in the Garden of Gethsemane. It would appear that the same 
multitude of 600 soldiers that had arrested Christ in the Garden of Gethsemane were now mocking him and being entertained at his expense. Now, there were several aspects to this abominable mockery of the King of Kings and the Lord of Lords. Christ said that he was the Messiah who would reign over his people, so these Roman soldiers decided that they would poke fun at the claims of one whom they considered to be a big joke. First of all, let us notice in Mark 15:17 that instead of a royal robe, the soldiers clothed Christ and his bare body with a robe which they found nearby, most likely one of the robes that one of the Roman soldiers had worn. Second, instead of the laurel wreath of an emperor, these soldiers wove together a wreath of thorns and placed it upon Christ's head. Mark 15, 17. Thirdly, instead of a royal scepter, they placed a wooden reed or rod into Christ's hand. In Matthew 27, Verse 29. Fourthly, instead of sincere acclamations of reverence due to the king of the universe, they mocked the Lord in derision by exclaiming, Hail, King of the Jews. In Mark 15:18. Fifthly, instead of placing themselves under the scepter of Of God's anointed king, these ungodly men took the wooden rod from the hand of Christ and began to violently beat him upon the head, driving that crown of thorns deeper and deeper into his skull, according to Mark 15.19. Sixthly, instead of kissing the son as he deserved We are told that these men shamefully spat upon him as if he were but dirt. According to Mark 15, 19. And finally, instead of humbling themselves before him, who had the power to open the ground beneath them so that they were swallowed alive into the earth, they taunted and teased him by bowing before him with no doubt all theatrical gestures becoming royalty. What I find amazing is that this Roman cohort of 600 soldiers that mocked the Lord and further added to his suffering by beating him with a rod upon his head and driving that crown of thorns deeper and deeper into his skull were just six hours before that time there in the Garden of Gethsemane And by Christ's sovereign power, when he declared himself to be the great I am, Jehovah God, they were knocked backwards, 600 of them, all at one time, displaying that he is in fact the King of kings and Lord of lords. They no doubt witnessed that themselves, experienced it themselves. In John 18, verses 3 through 6. Furthermore, this is the same Roman cohort of 600 soldiers that no doubt saw, and if they did not see, they knew that Christ had miraculously healed 
the ear of the priest's servant that had been cut off by Peter. In Luke chapter 22, verses 50 and 51, there was these soldiers who now mocked the Lord did not do so in ignorance. They did so denying what they knew to be the truth about Christ. They had witnessed the demonstration of his royal authority and power, and they had heard his testimony that he was the king of Israel. He was the Messiah, but instead of bowing, reverencing themselves before him, they made fun of him. He became a joke to them. His back was cut to to shreds. Blood poured down, no doubt, from his head. He was in chains before them. And he had been made to look like a clown. Therefore, they concluded, because here was one in his humiliation, he could not be a king. He was not sitting upon a royal throne somewhere. He could not be a king, they concluded. But they were wrong. And perhaps some of these very men were stationed outside the tomb of Christ to to fall down as those who were dead when that stone was rolled away on that resurrection morning. Perhaps some of these men even witnessed that miraculous demonstration of Christ's power. But if they were not present to witness that miraculous event at his resurrection, they will, as all of us will, one day bow the knee to Christ. In all seriousness, and acknowledge that he is King of kings and Lord of lords. And if we do not voluntarily in this life acknowledge the Lord Jesus Christ by faith, to be the King of kings and Lord of lords. We will do so under coercion in that final day. But there will be no remedy. That same judge, that same king, will cast all of those who did not voluntarily, by faith, submit themselves to Christ in this life, will cast them forever into a lake of fire that burns forever. Dear ones, what about you? Does the humiliation of Christ and his suffering lead you to conclude that he was only a mere man and nothing more? Does the fact that you do not presently see him with your eyes seated upon the throne of his glory lead you to take him seriously? Or to take him flippantly and casually? Do you simply go through the motions of your worship, acting and pretending to bow before him? Because, as I said earlier, in the time of prayer, there's no difference when we do so than what these soldiers were doing in mocking and pretending that Christ was king. For there is coming a day when the curtain will be rolled back and it will not be a king wearing a crown of thorns any longer. It will not be a king holding a wooden scepter any longer. 
There will be no one who is spitting in the face of the Lord Jesus Christ any longer. There will be no one who is mocking and ridiculing the Lord Jesus. Rather, there will be weeping and gnashing of teeth for all who have not trusted Christ alone for their eternal salvation and have not bowed the knee to him as the Lord of their life and the Lord of all creation. Dear ones, the crown of thorns which Christ wore, I would suggest you point to Christ as the second Adam. You'll recall it was the sin of the first Adam that brought the curse of thorns and misery into this world. And it is the obedience and the suffering of the second Adam, Jesus Christ, that bore the curse of thorns and misery, which all men deserve, so that all those who look away from their own self-righteousness all of those who look away from their own law-keeping, all those who look away from their own merit and goodness, all those who look away from their sins, whether they consider their sins to be enormous or whether they consider their sins to be relatively small compared to others, all of those who look away from their sins and look to Christ as their only righteousness, as their only hope of eternal salvation, as the one who came to break the curse of that first covenant which condemns us all by nature. He came as the second Adam to establish a new covenant that is not founded and based upon our goodness and righteousness and law-keeping, but is based upon His goodness and righteousness and law-keeping. Who are you trusting in today, dear ones? Who are you looking to for your salvation? Christ or to yourself? I close, dear ones, by bringing before your attention that the sight of that bleeding and suffering Christ caused those soldiers to turn away from Christ and to mock him. When they saw a bleeding and suffering Christ, they did not run to him. They did not embrace him by faith. They mocked him and ridiculed him. Have your eyes been opened today to see that the stripes of Christ and the bloodied skull of Christ are your salvation? For he did not suffer for any wrong, as we said, that he has done. He suffered for sinners like you and me. Will you not flee to him, whoever you are, whether you have come to Christ by faith already or whether you have never come to Christ by faith? Will you not today flee to Christ? Will you not embrace Christ who suffered for you? He is no longer the suffering servant. He is now the risen king. But he continues to be our high priest, applying that work which he accomplished to all of those who look to him in faith. If you have already received Christ, dear ones, let the stripes of Christ show you what you really deserve for the sin you have committed. 
Were there ever stripes and wounds that were ever so beautiful? And the stripes and the wounds of the Lord Jesus Christ. For dear ones, by his stripes you are healed. So stop trying to heal yourself of your sin and misery. And come to Christ who says it's by his stripes that you are healed. There is only one divinely appointed means of healing. It is the suffering of Jesus Christ. By his stripes, you are healed. Please stand with me in prayer. This Reformation audio track is a production of Stillwater's Revival Books. You are welcome to make copies and give them to those in need. SWRB makes thousands of classic Reformation resources available, free and for sale, in audio, video, and printed formats. It is likely that the sermon or book that you just listened to is also available on cassette or video, or as a printed book or booklet. Our many free resources, as well as our complete mail-order catalog, containing thousands of classic and contemporary Puritan and Reform books, tapes, and videos at great discounts, is on the web at www.swrb.com. We can also be reached by email at swrb at swrb.com, by phone at 780-450-3730, by fax at 780-468-1096, or by mail at 4710-37A Avenue, Edmonton, that's E-D-M-O-N-T-O-N, Alberta, abbreviated capital A, capital B, Canada, T6L3T5. You may also request a free printed catalog. And remember that John Calvin, in defending the Reformation's regulative principle of worship, or what is sometimes called the scriptural law of worship, commenting on the words of God, which I commanded them not, neither came into my heart, from his commentary on Jeremiah 7.31, writes, God here cuts off from men every occasion for making evasions, since he condemns by this one phrase, I have not commanded them, whatever the Jews devised. There is then no other argument needed to condemn superstitions than that they are not commanded by God. For when men allow themselves to worship God according to their own fancies, and attend not to his commands, they pervert true religion. And if this principle was adopted by the papists, all those fictitious modes of worship in which they absurdly exercise themselves would fall to the ground. It is indeed a horrible thing for the papists to seek to discharge their duties towards God by performing their own superstitions. There is an immense number of them, as it is well known, and as it manifestly appears. Were they to admit this principle, that we cannot rightly worship God except by obeying his word, they would be delivered from their deep abyss of error. The prophet's words, then, are very important when he says that God had commanded no such thing and that it never came to his mind, as though he had said that men assume too much wisdom when they devise what he never required, nay, what he never knew.